Kirby Alpha and the Team of Nebraska. Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday. It's his weekly Monday appearance except owing to Memorial Day. This occurred on Tuesday. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest and on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. What has become a common practice during our weekly conversations of late. I once again asked Dave Cameron to identify what in baseball is like a certain home improvement project I've endeavored to perform. I won't burden the listener with all the details of that particular project right now. What I will say, however, is that it leads to not uninteresting territory, not entirely uninteresting territory, namely that of rebuilding the rebuild. Rebuilding the rebuild. What happens when a rebuild fails, asked Dave Cameron. How long does it take to determine that it has failed? And are there any practical examples from recent history? Much of our conversation is dedicated to those questions that said we don't ignore the sensational and the tabloid, which is to say the contretemps, the recent contretemps, something I'm discussing just so I can say contretemps between Bryce Harper and Hunter Strickland. If I asked Dave Cameron if it is generally our practice at Fangraphs.com to um, ask questions and attempt to answer them intelligently, what questions can we ask that would lead to intelligent answers about this particular contretemps? And uh, is it any of our business? Is a question Dave Cameron asks himself. If, if this is a workplace-related event and everyone is satisfied with the status quo, which is to say beating each other, uh, perhaps it's not our business to say it should function any differently. Dave Cameron is dealing with some injuries and some illnesses as he enters this week. He's just torn his ACL. And also, he has some manner of stomach virus, which has caused him to vomit, not only leading up to the recording of the program, but during the recording itself. Can we take a quick break so I can let Liberty out and potentially hurl? That disgusting, disgusting audio and what's to follow. What I would like to announce right now is that Fangraphs memberships exist for a reasonable sum. Listeners of the pod and, of course, readers of Fangraphs.com can contribute to Fangraphs.com and support the good work that occurs at that site. For a slightly less reasonable sum, readers can acquire an ad-free membership, allowing them to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, facilitating not only faster loading speeds, but also liberating oneself from the distortive effects of advertising. And with that advertisement concluded, we can now move on to the conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? A sick and injured Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Like, yeah, you don't see swelling like this unless you tore something pretty good. So let's get you an MRI. And uh, so I'm having an MRI on Thursday. Hmm. And then and then Friday he'll tell me, yep, you need surgery. Yeah. Well, Cameron, <clears throat> that sounds bad. Yeah. Um, in an six, effort to... Six, to, six to 12 month rehab. <clears throat> it's different than when you're a ball player, isn't it? You're not a ball player. <laughs> yeah. The nice thing is my fingers still work. So I'll I will continue to work through my uh, through my knee problems. Yeah, you know the well. I'll get to the I'll get to this later. We're going to talk about someone else whose fingers don't work. Um, but but I, I would like to burden you, Dave Cameron, with another story from landscaping. Oh God, this is going to be worse <laughs> than a torn ACL. <laughs> the 
Do, do, I, I think we last time we spoke, Cameron, I might have sounded even a little bit triumphant in uh, regarding how much work I had just done the previous weekend. Yeah. Did it all get washed away in a rainstorm? So it's interesting that you mentioned that because we had an immense amount of rain the following yeah. week. Yeah. Including like one 24-hour period where we had over – we had like an inch and a quarter. It's a lot of rain. Which, what's that? It's a lot of rain. Yeah, it's a lot of rain. And here's the thing like – if you have that much rain and you already have grass on your lawn, it, it absorbs it better, right? right. There's just more. Yeah. But you had mud. Organic material. I already had mud, and I had been watering it with some consistency over the course of the week because if, especially if you're growing grass, you need to keep it moist, right? Yeah. So I've been doing that, and then we just had this uh, deluge of yeah. – and um, it created giant puddles in my yard. Anyway – I've been, and in addition to that, we've had colder than um, than average temperatures. So now I'm forced to consider this fact that I did all this work last weekend, and essentially, which, which we re- compared to a rebuild. I think it was actually that was a pretty easy analogy to make, yeah. Dave Cameron. So now I'm having these thoughts. It's like, well, I think some things will still grow, you know. Like, I've already seen some of the grasses coming up. You might remember I planted some buckwheat as well. Buckwheat yeah. does not thrive in very moist conditions. So it's, it, some of it has germinated, sprouted, but it looks, uh, it looks pained. It looks like it does not. I have buckwheat that would, that wants to kill itself. We have suicidal buckwheat. Yeah. Well, if I was a type of, uh, dry desiring grass living in Maine in your backyard, I would probably off myself too. Yeah. Well, it, it doesn't need it to be bone dry, but uh, this is too much moisture. Is it a puddle? It's in standing water. It did not care for it. Yeah, everything's drained now, but still. I don't know if you're aware of this, but landscaping is not fun. No, apparently not. Yeah. But here's the question: it led me, it led me to consider. So I'm already thinking about how how I've screwed up, and how, if at all, I can uh, resurrect it, resurrect this problem. And so I've come to a point where. Apropos our last conversation, I've begun thinking about how to rebuild the rebuild, uh, and, I'm, and I'm only a week out, Dave. Yeah, when you're already questioning your rebuild uh, weekend, you know, things aren't going so well. But I guess I guess so. We we've uh, cited a couple teams that have attempted to undergo rebuilds in recent years, and of course there are some examples of some teams that have done it uh, quite well. I guess I mean I think that uh, even though you say you wrote last week that it's not really time to talk about the Brewers. As a playoff team, I think it's probably fair to say that things are going well in terms of the broader plan for that that club. Right, that's uh, true. The Phillies appear to be learning some things about their ball club. Um, they've on, and of course the Astros. Uh, well, the Astros. What certainly do they have the best? They have the best record somewhere. Certainly in their division, maybe no, in baseball? baseball. In baseball, yeah. Okay, so I think we could say. <clears throat> That's that's a sign of success. That's a, that's they've had a good rebuild, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Wait, did you, you said it's skeptical. Well, they didn't. They struggled last year, and I think what like the they made the playoffs a couple years ago. We got eliminated early. Generally, I think you would say like the rebuild is successful after like you know the Cubs or something, right? Where you have a sustained uh, stretch of, of excellence. And I mean, the Astros, I think their rebuild has worked. I would agree with that statement. I don't know that they would. They don't think the work is done yet. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, now, but I guess one thing I, about which I thought is, are there any teams? A, are there any like actual examples from recent history? I suppose 
that uh, come to mind about teams that have, as soon as they've rebuilt or or very shortly after rebuilding, that they endure some other sort of rebuild. and Or alternatively, if a team does decide to rebuild and then finds that their attempts to do so, whatever uh, plan they um, they have committed to appears not to be working, when is like the earliest possible date at which a team could decide to essentially try again? Yeah, I mean, the Mariners are probably there, right? Like, uh, so Bill Bavese, uh ran the team after Pat Gillick, and so Bavese inherited a very old team. Uh, you know, Gillick is famous for winning and then getting out right before the crash. So Bill Bavese comes in, kind of runs the Mariners into the ground for a while, and after what, like 2008, they're like, okay, enough of that. We don't, we're, we're tired of your rebuilds, this didn't work. Let's bring in Jack Zarensik, who's really gonna rebuild. So he rebuilt the rebuild. And then that also didn't work. <laughs> and so now they're, you know, 12 years into a rebuild, and I think they're six or seven games under 500 with an old team with bad contracts on the books and no farm system. So now they're probably looking at it and saying, look, you know, if we're 13 games behind the Astros in May, uh, this may not be our year. Maybe we need to actually consider, are we doing this again? Are we entering rebuild number three? No, okay, here's a question. I, I'm sure that... Uh... Uh, one who's been around if you've been around baseball for some time you know when a team has entered a rebuilding phase right but if you were to attempt to define it objectively what do you what do you think it would uh, what do you think would be some of you know like three to five indicators where you could say if if a team meets meets all these criteria that is officially a rebuild I mean, probably if you get rid of players who uh, are objectively either your best players or franchise icons. So, uh, like the Phillies, right? They uh, let Ryan Howard leave, and they let Chase Utley leave. Um, you know, they kind of the guys who had been the foundational pieces of their run are no longer there. So, if you kind of make a decision to move on from you know guys who you might want to put in your team's Hall of Fame someday, you're probably rebuilding. Um, and then you probably look at like promoting guys to the big leagues uh, who are not clearly ready for the majors or aren't necessarily, like, your biggest chips, right? So, like, if you look at some of these rebuilding rotations, like the the Padres, uh, what they, they're starting um, guys who are either past their prime, didn't have a prime, or what, they, um, the guy that you like, Lamette, is that his last name? Oh, yeah, Denelson Lamette. Denelson Lamette. Like, this is, what, a 21-year-old who... Um, it probably could have used more time in the major in the minor leagues. Like I don't think anyone was like, yeah, Nelson Lamette looks like big league ready, but the Padres just don't have any other pitchers, so now he's in their rotation. No, he is. I will say he is 24, but he's never been he's never really been considered a top prospect, right? Um, and he but he turns out to be pretty good. Well, he's got he, one one start at the big leagues. He's good now. One start. He's really good against Michael Conforto. That's not a bad person to be good against. No, I know, but Conforto's been uh, quite good this year. So promoting players who whose past to the major leagues maybe was not obvious right. pre- previously. Yeah, giving guys a chance who, you know, like if you're playing, you know, Adam Duvall, that looks like a pretty good player. But a couple of years ago when the Reds traded for Adam Duvall, he was a 4A first baseman, and then they stuck him in left field. It was like, well, this seems like a weird experiment. And now Adam Duvall has, like, blossomed into a potentially core piece for the Reds. But that's the kind of player that if you're playing, you know, two years ago as Adam Duvall, you're probably not trying to win. Here's a question. If Adam Duvall had been playing for a team that did not enter um, or or that it was not good, I guess, right, because he was in the Giants system, that's how he ended up in the Reds. If he had 
been part of a team that was only, or if he had stayed with the Giants or been part of a team that was only mediocre, would he have this career? Or did, did he a sense did he is his career only made possible or his success in the major leagues is it only made possible by the fact that he was able to end up on a mediocre club? I mean, I think players like this generally tend to find their way to clubs that will give them playing time. So if Duval had not been traded, eventually he would have qualified for minor league free agency. Um, and so after six years of, uh, of playing for one organization, you get to go choose another organization. So I think, like, Duval at some point would have, you know, said, okay, the Giants aren't going to play me. I'm out of here. Right. And uh, it's interesting because he, he shares an outfield with Scott Shebler at the moment. Yeah. And Shebler is uh, nearly identical in this way. Um, Shebler was a little bit more of a prospect than Duval was. Right. But, they, you know, this the Reds are a strange team now. A brief detour, I guess, to consider the Reds. I was looking up at least their offense. Their offense is good. Yeah, it's really good. Do, do you know that their position players lead the league in uh, wins above replacement collectively? Yeah, I'm not surprised. And this is with, like, playing Jose Peraza, who's basically a, a zero so far. So it's like, you know, they've got a still another place to potentially upgrade. Um, and uh, still, uh, this lineup, I mean, I guess they're going to lose Zach Cozart at the end of the year or when they trade him. Um, and uh, finding a shortstop to hit like Zach Cozart is not so easy, so that will hurt them. But, like, yeah, I mean, obviously Joey Votto's good. But, like, you know, the surrounding cast of, of Duvall and Shebler and then Eugenio Suarez and Devin Mazzarocco, like, they've found some pieces. So, so um, now the Reds, of course, they traded uh, Brandon Phillips. They traded Jay Bruce. They traded Todd Frazier. Um, and they promoted, as we've noted, um, Adam Duvall. And um, Scott, they have Scott Shebler, who, right, maybe he was – he was not an elite prospect, but he was a fine one. Um, do, do, is that – are those uh, – does that qualify then as a team in a, in a rebuild? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at, like, trading away, you know, potential free agents for, you know, guys – uh, with, I would say, lower ceilings. I mean, they, they were, they, the Reds pretty clearly rebuilt differently than, like, the Braves, right? Like, so the Braves have gone for every 18-year-old pitcher they can find with command problems, mm-hmm. where the Reds were like, let's find every 22-year-old who makes contact but doesn't have power. Uh, except for Duvall, who's a pretty different driven from that. But, you know, Shebler was kind of an underpowered corner outfielder. Uh, Dilson Herrera, Jose Peraza, like, they stocked up on these kind of underpowered, so you know, Suarez as well, um, guys who were, you know, maybe not great defensive players at shortstop, so we're going to have to move to second or third and didn't have the bat to play there. And so that was kind of the type of player they loaded up on, and then, like, Suarez and, and Shebler and uh, not Peraza yet, but I don't think they remain hopeful that he could turn into something, um, have have turned into pretty decent players. Yeah, okay. And so is it just those two uh, those two criteria then? Do you think there's anything else that goes along with it? Um, I mean, that's kind of probably the main thing. Trading away your main players or letting your, your kind of uh, iconic players go and giving chances to young players, that's that's basically the definition of rebuilding. I guess you can also say, like, not spending money. Like, if, right. if ownership trims payroll significantly, you're probably not trying to win. What about a, what about a public declaration? Yeah, I mean, that's right. If you're Rick Hahn and you come out and you say, like, everyone's for sale, call me with offers. <laughs> but sometimes teams are hesitant to do it, if if for no other reason than because it signals something to the fans, right? Yeah, I, although I think, like, fans nowadays, realize, they get it for the most part. Like, mm-hmm. fans would rather you win 65 and get the number one pick than 75 and the number 12 pick. Right, so. because you're... 
get those those ten marginal wins are probably easier to claw to earn back, right? Yeah, right. Like no one wants to watch a sixty five win team, but at least you can say like, hey, you know, we're doing the we're doing what the Cubs and Astros did. We're going to be bad. We're going to have stockpile draft picks. That's not exactly what those teams did, but it's the narrative. And you can say like, look, when this number one overall pick turns out, or you know, like the Reds got Nick Senzel last year, so now they have like this you know polished college bat, twenty two year old, is not that far from the big leagues, and they can look forward to Nick Senzel. And so you know, if you're if you're the Rays or something, and you're you're you don't have that guy, it's not as easy to kind of have your fans look forward and say, "Oh yeah, this is working." And then, so how long should a team wait before before uh, stopping or restarting a rebuild? I mean, you probably have to be pretty convinced that like the current path isn't working. At which point, you probably fire the guy who's in charge. <laughs> so it usually, I would say, coincides with when you lose faith in the front office. So if you say, okay, you're going to be in charge of a rebuild, and then it never pans out, and then you're like, well, sorry, Jackson, it's like you're, you're you're out of a job. That's when when you and that's like two up. or three coaches worth of play, right? Yeah, I mean, usually the GM will cycle through a couple managers, blame it on the underlings, and and then people will realize like, nope, maybe this is a talent problem. Okay, all right. Uh, <clears throat> well, that is a um, well, that is a bit of a of a stretched analogy, but I think that uh, what we're able to do here, Dave Cameron, in addition to uh, learn more about the games. We're able to uh, we're able to learn more about uh, my landscaping troubles. That's important. Can yeah. we take a quick break so I can let Liberty out and potentially hurl? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Cool. That's fine. We'll listen to the Fangraphs hold music. Listen to the Fangraphs hold music while you're gone. <laughs> Oh, I just realized I didn't mute my mic. Could you hear that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> my bad. I meant to mute it before I left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not going to be the new outro. <laughs> yeah, well, to punish you, maybe. Yeah, yeah like, this is Carson Sestulian, or, the, you know, whatever you say, and then you just, like, play a big puking sound. <laughs> um... Okay, Dave Cameron, let me ask you, let's move on to this thing. And uh, it pertains to something that occurred, I don't know, it's not uh, quite, um, you know, along those sorts of world tragedies where one will forever remember where he or she was when it occurred. Uh, but I was at a, I was at a local pub uh, eating salmon with my wife and mother-in-law uh, yesterday when Hunter Strickland hit Bryce Harper. Do you frequently order salmon at a pub? Uh, it, it, this is a pub on the, the main coast, so it's always going to have. Um, yeah, but salmon's not native to Maine. It's it's pub. It's from the Atlantic Ocean, which is we're very very close to. Dave Cameron, I'm not worried about it. Is my point? Okay. Here, let me ask you this: uh, <clears throat> Are there any? It's generally our job uh, and our great interest into ask, attempting to ask questions about a topic. And then attempting to answer them, right? Sure. Um, with regard to something like this, are there questions that, within our our purview, Dave Cameron, the purview of Fangraphs, are there any questions we can ask about something like? I mean, I could think of something like, oh, you know, maybe there's some research to be done to create incentive, you know, to incentivize players not to hit each other with a ball, or, right. you know, um, 
Is there any? Could we look at uh, somehow like conceptions or or uh, of masculinity or how men are acting out masculinity? Because this seems to be a part of that. But I don't know. It would, is there anything along those lines? Can we ask a smart question about it? I mean, I think one of the interesting things, obviously, whenever anything like this happens, there's the cadre of people who uh, get up in arms and say, I can't believe this still happens in Major League Baseball. This is stupid and immature. And I generally agree with those sentiments. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think like throwing a projectile at another human being because you're mad that he hit a home run on off you three years ago in the World Series in which you won, uh, mm-hmm. or you know, on the way to the World Series in which you won, is about the definition of juvenile. Um so I, I'm not saying I, I think that philosophy is wrong, but you get that kind of very early hot take response to basically any one of these events. And mm-hmm. then you get the other side, which is the generally people who played, who say, look, you know, this is our code of ethics. This is our internal rules, right? Like, we, this is our workplace. We, we establish our own guidelines for how to behave, and we need the ability to please ourselves. And, um... And I don't think the two sides often listen to each other very frequently. And I'm, I'm not one who thinks the players should just be given free reign to do whatever they want in order to like self-policing under like, you know, like, um, I think getting rid of hazing was a good idea. Like I think Major League Baseball has made some steps to kind of help change the culture of baseball in ways like the culture of baseball has not, not kept up with, uh, the culture of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is probably one of those areas, but I think at the same time, I do wonder like how much credibility or, um, you know, kind of power, do people who aren't actively involved with workplace dynamics, should they have over those specific workplace dynamics, right? Like, if, if Fangraphs had some kind of, um, you know, office and we kind of had, like, a way of doing things, should, should someone who doesn't work in that office be able to come in and be like, I don't like your your culture and the way you guys uh, operate. Like, obviously the boss could do that, people with, like, an equity stake in the company. But if you're just, like, an observer who reads Fangraphs and is like, I think that the way you guys interact in the office, or, you know, Carson, you get teased by Cameron on the podcast, I think that's bad for the site, you should stop doing that. And I want to, like, rally a cause for you guys to change your interpersonal dynamics. And I think, like, if someone, like, tried to do that, we would probably just be like, who are you, and why are you here again? Like, yeah. you don't you don't necessarily have a seat at the table. Unless so. someone was like being, unless it was like a law being broken. Yeah, right. I mean, obviously, yeah. if we were like harming someone, I would hope people would intervene. But like, you know, and and you can argue like this is ninety eight mile an hour baseball <laughs> being thrown at you. Um, this is assault outside of the baseball world, right? So like, um, but I do think that there's some argument to be made. I don't know how much I agree with it entirely, but I think that there's something to be said for the clubhouse and players. Um, having some authority to set up kind of norms and uh, cultural status uh, and the way things work within their own clubhouse that those of us who aren't in the clubhouse shouldn't necessarily have as much a say over. Right. And, and I would, my guess would be that the one problem would be, right, if the – if because there, there is a violent aspect to it, right? There's both – Sure. The actual yeah. hitting the player with the baseball, and then there's sort of like inevitable, and, yeah, right. yeah, melee that ensues. <clears throat> is that there is a certain, is that to, and, and part of this has come up with uh, Buster Posey's part in the brawl, which was not really, which is to do very little, <laughs> to um, do the least of any catcher ever. <laughs> right, and I think that I think that I've seen some comments to the, the effect that he's stated this previously that because he. You know, he had to have his ankle essentially rebuilt. Um, that it's not really worth it to him or the Giants yeah. for him to participate in this sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, 
But if the the danger, right, is in theory, the concern is that if one player, or if there's uh, if there are players who exist in the league who don't necessarily disagree or who don't necessarily agree with that manner of self policing, right. that given this somewhat violent and um, sort of like intolerant nature of the practice, um, they would not necessarily be in a position. Um, where they could speak out against it. Right. And I think that's one of the challenging things, is, like, who gets to say what the clubhouse dynamic should be? And I think Major League Baseball um, would probably say, like, in general, they would like to defer to the players, but there's a line at which if the players start crossing the line, they can't allow them to do this. It's not good for the game. It's not good for the product. It's, it's um, you know, harmful to the company. And so at some point the boss steps in and says, hey, you know, Stop this. And, um, but I do think, like, from a, also a practical perspective, I don't know entirely how you stop this, right? Like, we can talk about, like, longer suspensions or something like that, mm-hmm. and that probably is not a bad idea. Like, you know, Hunter Strickland should get more than five games or whatever he's going to get. Um, but I think, like, you know, if someone's angry enough, they're still going to find some way to display that anger. It might not be the same way. Maybe, like, they, maybe they don't throw at a guy in the game, uh, you know, in the same in the same way, but they make it like a little less obvious. Like maybe guys get better about hiding it. So maybe then it's also not like an O2 count. You throw a curveball that gets away, and like okay, that's less damaging. You're not going to hurt someone with a curveball as much as a 98 mile an hour fastball. But I don't think we can legislate out the human desire for revenge when someone feels slighted. What do we know uh, in general about human beings and uh, and strategies of deterrence? Right? Like I, I like obviously for many. For for many people, I guess, I, I, and, and perhaps this isn't obvious. This isn't even obvious, but it would seem reasonable to say that for some people, a prison sentence, the threat of a prison sentence, or some sort of legal punishment, is an effective deterrent towards certain types of behavior. Right. right? Yeah. Um, perhaps that's not even that is not true. Obviously, there's some people who feel, and um, some of them are attorneys general. That even stronger, um, stronger prison sentences are required um, to send those messages home. They, they have a great deal of faith in the um, in the deterrent practices of prison time, for example. And or they're probably, a vindictive little piece of the crap. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's fine. And 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 there are probably other people who feel as though there's very little merit in it, right? And um, now that's on a sort of uh, that's on a sort of social, large social scale. Um, what do we do? Do we have any sense of what, like, to what degree uh, suspensions in baseball have a deterrent effect, and and how much of this activity would still occur even if those sort of suspensions were in place? I mean, it's, it's hard to say with any certainty. Uh, I think probably the easiest way to look at this would be like PED suspensions. So mm-hmm. when they first came into play, I think they were twenty-five and fifty games initially. Those were the uh, the, the first time suspensions uh, or the first run of uh, suspensions that Major League Baseball and the Players Association agreed to, and then guys kept using and uh, getting caught, and so they were like, this isn't this isn't working. Let's go to 50 and 80, which is, I think, where we are now, or it might be now 80 and 162. Like, we're on either second or third iteration of, of steroid suspensions, and they've gotten longer. Like, uh, at every revision, mm-hmm. uh, they've, they've gotten harsher. And guys are still getting caught, right? Like, Starling Marte got suspended for 80 games for using whatever he was using a couple months ago. Um, and so... 
I don't, I don't think we can say, like, you know, if you just make the punishment harsh enough, everyone will stop doing it. Like, at some point, there's a financial incentive that outweighs the risk of getting caught, and someone will make a decision. Now, maybe fewer of those people make the decision, but if you're looking at, like, how do we eliminate pitchers throwing at hitters and hitters charging the mound, you can make a 162-game suspension, and someone's still going to do it. Like, there's going to be someone out there who's angry enough who's like, you know what, I'm 41, and my arm hurts, uh... I was going to be done in a month anyway. Like, you know, I've already announced my retirement. It's September 15th. Here's a fastball at your head. Yeah. Hunter Strickland seemed very upset about it. I saw the way he was being carted off, well, restrained by, what, three large teammates. Yeah. I think that I saw that Jason, no, Hunter Pence, uh, Hunter Pence and Jason Worth, basically the same person. Um, Hunter Pence uh, is going to be suspended for coming on the field while on the disabled list because he's not on the active roster, even yeah. though he was trying to haul Hunter Strickland off the field. So the yeah, Major League yeah. Baseball is likely going to suspend Hunter Pence for helping maybe defuse they, an incident. Yeah. Maybe maybe they will employ leniency. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, one uh, Just one hypothetical question. Uh, what would have happened, do you suppose, if Bryce Harper had maybe yelled, bar- barked back at... Uh, Hunter Strickland, but then gone to first base. Uh, Strickland probably would have been suspended and Harper would not have. Right. Do you think it would have highlighted the the absurdity of this episode more? Because it would have been cl- totally clear that Hunter Strickland was essentially retaliating right. for an event that took place three years ago, which was what a pair of home runs he conceded to Bryce Harper during the NL or the, the division or championship series at that point. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think... It'll be interesting to see if, you know, like Harper, I think, is one of these uns- is outspoken athletes who's been like, this code of unwritten rules is stupid and I don't like them. And he's talked openly about how he thinks this is dumb. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if guys like him eventually make the choice of, like, we're not going to play by these rules anymore. And maybe he just goes to first base and starts, like, singing a song, making fun of Hunter Strickland's mom or something, right? Like, yeah. like some other way of, of retaliating and getting under your opponent's skin rather than, like, getting punched in the face when you throw a helmet wildly. Um, you know, like, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, like, if the players ever decide, like, we don't want this to continue. Because it's really probably on them to make this change. Legislating the change from the top is going to be challenging. Right. Okay. Uh, and just a final question, because uh, I know you might have to to vomit soon. Um, uh, the, the the Mike Trout news. He, what he um, he needs to have surgery on the uh, the um, U the U C L the U C L in his thumb. Which yeah. He hurt while stealing a base. It's the same ligament as the Tommy John surgery in your elbow. Right. So how many U C Ls do we have? Uh, I don't know. At least two. Well, yeah, at least at least four, right? Four, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. All right. Does Ari Dickey not have? Uh, yeah, maybe uh, he doesn't have UCLs on his thumb either. UCLs on his thumb. Yeah. Man has no ligaments <laughs> held together by his skin. Um. Uh. So he's out four to six weeks. What do you? What would you put? Uh, six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks. All right. So the probability of him still, um, still recording more wins above replacement than anyone else in the league. I think it's actually still somewhat high. Uh, I think if you look at, he's at three six, right? So let's, he got three six in two months. He's theoretically going to get two months at the end of the season when he comes back. Um, you know, that could change depending on if the Angels are like way out of the race and they decide to slow him down or something. But let's say he gets a month and a half to two months. Based on a normal Mike Trout performance, you're giving him another three wins probably for two months. Maybe four. Like somewhere between three and four would be a normal Mike Trout. Uh, four is on the high side, but three-ish. So, that puts him at six something. 
Uh, it's not normal for a league leader in war to end up at six. Uh, and I guess, like, technically we're talking about position players. Chris Sale's already at 3-2 or something, so he'll probably end up, unless he goes into the toilet or gets hurt or something, um, he'll probably end up at seven or eight. But, uh, you know, if you look at the other guys in the American League, like, you know, Miguel Sano and Aaron Judge and Carlos Correa and Francisco Lindor, the guys who are already a win and a half behind Trout, okay, yeah, they have a couple months to catch up but they're also significantly inferior players. So they would have to have a pretty good-sized lead for Trout to not then pass them again by the end of the season. So if I was eyeballing it, I would probably say 40% chance that Trout still ends up on top of the American League War leaderboard at the end of the season. Yeah, all right. Well, let's uh, let's see how your eyeballs do in this particular regard. Well, they're, uh, doing, just... they're doing better than other parts of me. <laughs> and let's just have an update. I know that you like to do this, so I will satisfy you. Uh, in this regard, here comes an Adam Fraser question. Here's an Adam Fraser update. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's had he's had some uh, uh, well, relatively rough games since then. But he's uh, he's batting three twenty four uh, right now, and he has a, a WRC plus thirty five percent better than league average. What was our over under at? Well, I I thought he was going to win the batting title. Oh yeah, that's not good. so. The, so the under there's a lot more under than there is over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And uh, let's see, 325 would not do it right now. Not not at all. No. Um, so uh, some ways to go for Adam Frazier. But uh, playing pretty well for um, – sort of probably playing better than most people would have expected. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably an interesting post you about Adam Frazier because I looked at him, you know, because you keep bringing him up every other day. Uh, yeah. And he doesn't actually make that much contact, right? Like he's like a really low strikeout guy, which is why you liked him in the first place because he ran like – sub 10% strikeout rates in the minor leagues. Yeah. But if you actually look at his contact rates, they're above average, but they're not elite. These have been revered. I mean, these are like 86%. And so for a guy to strike out this infrequently while making, uh, you know, good but not great contact usually means that you're swinging at everything and, you know, just have an aggressive approach at the plate. It's the, like the Ulyevsky guriel way of not striking out. But then Adam Prater drew like four walks in a game last week. And yeah. he's got like a walk rate of like 12% or something. So uh, he doesn't seem to fit the mold of guys just hacking wildly at everything in order to avoid strikeouts. Um, so how he's avoiding strikeouts while not being an elite contact guy is an interesting question. And one yeah. I would I would read about on the page, electronic pages of Fangraphs. Yeah, well, let's hope someone, someone covers it. Yeah. Uh, it might not be me. It might not. Do you have some, uh, you know, double-A catcher that you want to highlight instead? <laughs> no, not for the moment. Not for the moment. Dave Cameron, you've fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs. What happened to that guy that you were really high on that was the catcher a few years ago who drew a bunch of walks? Robert oh, Robert Crawl, was it? Yeah, yeah. Is he still in baseball? Mm, I think he was doing some really great work in the Atlantic League. <laughs> when we list the, uh, the long accomplishments of you identifying fringe prospects who might be good players, he's not going to be on your finest achievements. He might not be. Um, yeah, he played for Somerset in the Atlantic League last year. I, I will say that I, my, and Robert Crawl has actually been an important figure for me for two reasons. One, um, I'm more skeptical of catchers in general now. Yeah, good. Because catcher, catchers are terrifying to, not terrifying, but they're very difficult to assess because if again if they don't yeah. play catcher right. they don't fit in catcher yeah it's very difficult and um, I became much more interested in contact um, after a crawl right. unless yeah, yeah. Was, your early days you were all about the high walk rates yeah the high walk rates right yeah, yeah. Um, and also yeah so so position and contact probably made more sense yeah. and some of uh, to, to be fair Chris Mitchell who does the yeah. Cato projections. His work has um, has benefited me in that regard. Yeah, no, I think he's shown that like these high contact guys who can actually play some some reasonable position in the middle of the field uh, are probably the most underrated type of prospects. Yeah, 
Yeah. Good job. Good job, Chris Mitchell. Helping everybody. Okay. Hey, uh, Dave Cameron. You now you have uh, fulfilled your obligation. All right. All right. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron. He's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>